Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com. He koonai pūrangi tēnei nā te reo irirangi o Aotearoa. Hello and welcome to the Podcast Hour. I'm Richard Scott and each week I'll share some of the best audio storytelling from around the world. This week Unspooled dissects the top 100 films ever made, including Titanic starring Kate Winslet and Leonardo DiCaprio. And this is the beginning of the Leonardo DiCaprio going from hair in your face to hair slicked back, which is the beginning of the end for me as far as DiCaprio's Oh, concerned. really? That's when you check out? I like, wow. I like hair in the face. So you like beginning of movie, end of movie DiCaprio, not middle of movie DiCaprio, where he goes to like the fancy the fancy dinner. Yeah, as soon as he goes Irish jigging and his hair gets in his face, that's my man. The Rat Line tries to uncover the truth about a senior Nazi who disappeared after the Second World War. That's the strange context of my relationship with Horst. I believe his father bears a significant degree of responsibility for the murder of my grandfather's family. He thinks I'm wrong. Plus, Open Plan offices get the Freakonomics radio treatment. We ask the all-important question, what's wrong with just working from home? You know, the three great enemies of working from home is the fridge, the bed and the television. And No Feeling Is Final is a powerful first-person account of living with mental health issues. Mum says he's a keeper. Right now, for practical reasons, he is, in fact, the keeper of all the medications I'm currently taking. And next time you hear something great, then let me know. Pods at rnz.co.nz is the email. And on Twitter, we're at RNZ Podcast Hour. If you're into films and listening to clued up people talking about them, then check out Unspooled. In each episode, the film critic Amy Nicholson and the actor, comedian and all-round movie buff Paul Shear take a film from the American Film Institute's Top 100 list and pull it apart. I've listened to some good episodes recently about Apocalypse Now, 2001 A Space Odyssey and E.T. This is some of their take on number 83 on the AFI list, James Cameron's 1997 epic Titanic. I have to tell you, Titanic is a movie that... I was very excited about in the theater, right? Like, I was like, oh, this is so cool. I've never seen anything like it. But when you rolled that 83, I was like, ugh, Titanic. Uh And I want to say I've done a 180 on this movie because I think my memory of it has been kind of bastardized. I don't think I remembered the movie. I felt like it was all cheese with a really great special effects sequence in it. But I actually found that I engaged in this movie Much more. I feel like I've been giving this movie short shrift. Yeah, the Titanic backlash has been so strong that I feel like this movie actually deserves to be higher than 83, to be honest. I think this movie is so fantastic. I have some theories as to why that backlash uh, began. It's 
basically rhymes with James Cameron. But this movie meant the world to me. I think I saw this movie three times in theaters. I stole a poster from the movie. I put it up in my college dorm room. I went nuts. This is my this is my film. I do you ever get asked what's the one movie you would watch a bazillion times in a row that if you're flipping through the channels you just can't turn it off? Yeah. Because to me that's Titanic. Like full really? stop. This is my movie. How many times have you seen Titanic, do you think? Possibly wow. in the thirties. Wow. I, I have it on VHS and that dual deck VHS thing. Oh, I remember that. It was like a like for those of you <laughs> listening, there used to be VHS tapes and they came in a two pack. Like that's how big the movie was. Only like Godfather Two came in the two pack. Um I will say that in my research for Titanic, I thought Roger Ebert had a great quote about it. Um he said, It's flawlessly crafted, intelligently constructed, strongly acted, and spellbinding. Movies like this are not merely difficult to make at all, but almost impossible to make well. And I feel like that is, I will say just from a special effects standpoint, watching this movie, I'm like, this looks fantastic. Like, And talking about another epic like Ben-Hur, I'm like, oh, this is interesting. These movies are rewarded by FI. It's true. Maybe maybe we'll discover as we go through this list that the longer your movie is, the better of a chance it is. This is three <laughs> hours and 15 minutes. I don't regret a second of it. Titanic, to me, coming out in 1997 is really fascinating because it feels like it's both the last of the Ben-Hurs, mm-hmm. of the classic Ben-Hurs, and the beginning of everything to come. You know, it's this old-style epic, but it's also breaking every technological new ground. It's shaping our new world of CG. It's shaping what films are going to look like in the future. And arguably launching one of the biggest male stars of our time. I mean, I think DiCaprio, this is what catapulted him into the stratosphere. I mean, this became Leomania. I mean, was Leomania happening before? I mean, it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah, okay. yeah. There All was right. a little movie called Romeo and Juliet the year before. Wait, that this. was before this? Yeah, that was before this. I mean, that's how James Cameron pitched this movie is he said Romeo and Juliet on a ship. Well, it's so funny you say that because um, I wrote down this is Romeo and Juliet. Like these characters are so arched, they're so big, but I'm kind of okay with it. Um, There's a long period where everybody was in love with Leonardo DiCaprio and we just wanted to watch him die. I mean, if we can't have him, no one can. Everyone (laughs) will watch him die. He was so wonderful. And this is the beginning of the Leonardo DiCaprio going from hair in your face to hair slicked back, which is the beginning of the end for me as far as DiCaprio. Oh, really? That's when you check out? I like like hair in the face. So you like beginning of movie, end of movie DiCaprio, not middle of movie DiCaprio, where he goes to like the fancy fancy dinner. Yeah. As soon as he goes Irish jigging and his hair gets in his face, that's my man. You're right. So you were talking about this movie taking place at like an interesting point of time, the end of the Ben-Hur is going into like a a CGI revolution. I just wanted to kind of let the audience know it did come out uh, in 1997 and just a couple of things that were going on, just kind of put you in the headspace. This is the year that Princess Diana died. Uh, Mike Tyson bit Evander Holyfield's ear during a match. Uh, Notorious B.I.G. was shot and killed. And uh, if you're listening to the show, you know that we have a little obsession with The Simpsons. And The Simpsons became the longest-running primetime animated series in 1997, which is crazy to think that we're in 2018 and it's still going on. Don't worry, honey. You can win without them. I guess I'll have to. Then I'll be queen of the world of spelling. That's right, queen of the world of spelling. I think that Titanic is an interesting film because it really is the last film I can remember that, like, galvanized people. Even with another Cameron movie, Avatar, which eventually knocked this off the highest grossing list and and I would argue now, like, the Infinity War films, they don't have the power that Titanic had. That's so interesting because, to me, 1997 is also the year 
where people were really getting on the internet, like really, really getting okay, on the yeah. internet, really starting to, which to me is the beginning of the fragmentation of pop culture, of everybody getting into niches. Oh, yeah. You know, to me, maybe Titanic is the last of the Michael Jackson era where we were all really into one thing. Believe, and I love Infinity War. I'm a big fan. It's just not going to have the resonance that this film had. And I think Infinity War is just a flatter film because what Titanic is, is it's terrifying. It's legitimately terrifying in a way that Marvel movies aren't really because you know not everybody, you know people aren't going to really die. They might vanish, but they'll be back. There's real <laughs> death in Titanic. Spoilers. Sorry. 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 <laughs> kind of not sorry. The love in, the love story here in Titanic is unbelievable. No other modern avatar kind of film even compares to that. Like everything here is just operating. It's a thriller. It's action. It's historical. It's drama. It's literally every genre in this gigantic package, and then it's flawlessly done. The love story is a very small section of the movie when you look at the whole, because I kind of think of the movie in different chunks. Like you have uh, obviously the Bill Paxton section that kind of bookends it. Then you have the love story, and then you have the accident, you know, the, the sinking of the Titanic. The Rose and Jack, like, romance part really is – Starting at like 40 minutes in, and by an hour and 47 minutes in, we're hitting the the fatal crash. So then the movie just goes full-on thriller. So I feel like they do a lot of legwork in that time to set up this like grand romance, which I thought was surprising at how economical it is. Like, you know, a lot of times I think we f uh, find that films now spend too much time setting up stuff. And here they really were able to cut to the chase. Well, I think it's astonishing how real their romance is. You know, it's the kind of quote-unquote typical cliche, like, poor boy, rich girl story. But Rose DeWitt Boudicca, played by Kate Winslet, is maybe one of the best female characters I've seen. Because she's not just this, like, perfect heroine. She's a snob. She's really hot-tempered. In comparison to Rose, Leonardo DiCaprio's a manic pixie dream hunk, can we call him that? <laughs> I mean, Jack is just like handsome blonde, loves her beyond all measure from the first time he sees her, gives her a hard time, teaches her how to shake up her life, teaches her how to spit. I will say that even I was wooed by DiCaprio. I mean, he has this amazing energy, but I think his energy stays in one direction. It's always moving forward and agreeing with what you're saying here. Kate Winslet really shows you this amazing transition from this uh person who's kept, you know, in in a safe, you know, and then gets to really fully blossom. So yes, he was the catalyst, but she made this grand arc. I think that's the reason why Kate Winslet and Gloria Stewart both got nominated for Academy Awards, because it is an amazing character arc performance, 100%. I think in many ways, she gets underrated in this film because of DiCaprio mania. Well, see, here is what I love about just the way James Cameron structures their romance into the film. He does it geographically. Their romance starts at the back of the film with her committing suicide and him trading his life for her. It goes all the way up to the very front of the prow and the heart will go on moment when he kisses her for the first time and they're embracing in the sunset. And then it goes all the way back to the bottom when they're at the back of the ship as it sinks to the ocean and he gives up his life for her again. Wow. It's this beautiful circular arc. You just blew my mind with that. I, I did not think of it like that. That's actually really – it's amazing. I think one thing that this movie does so well is geography. Like it does it so well. James Cameron is amazing at this. Like he sets up how the entire ship looks like. He's like, here's steerage. Here's the 
big gears at the bottom and the coal stuffers. Here's first class. Here's the dining room. Here's the deck. He sets it up so well that when the ship goes to hell at the end of it and they're running through everything, we know where everything is. We've been there. We have the geography. I will argue that he even does it before the actual movie starts by showing you that dive footage of the actual Titanic. You're in the actual Titanic. Then you come out and you're with Bill Paxton. And then they show you a like computer generated simulation of how the Titanic sank. So you understand everything before you even get on that boat. He understands that you don't get tension from not knowing what's happening, that you get tension from knowing what's going to happen. You know that ship is going to break in half. And how it's literally going to break in half when Bill Paxton's buddy, the guy with the funny t-shirts, uh, basically- <laughs> The guy sh- with the smiley face with a bullet on his head. By the way, not an actor. James Cameron wrote it with his friend in mind. And then when he couldn't find the right actor for that role, he's like, I'll just cast my friend. And he's like, if you want me to wreck your movie. Um, but- He shows you, he's like, once the ship breaks in half, then this part's going to go up and then it's going to go down really fast. It literally lays out every detail of the accident before you're even there. And then it's like in the back of your mind. So the entire film, it works on all these levels. It almost allows you to enjoy the end more because you know what's going to happen. It's foreshadowing. Paul Shear and Amy Nicholson discussing Titanic on Unspooled. And that's produced by Josh Richmond. Jackie McMillan is an avid podcast listener who emailed me at pods at rnz.co.nz about a new favourite of hers, a BBC series called The Rat Line. Thanks for the tip, Jackie. The story told by the barrister and author Philippe Sands concerns the mysterious disappearance of a high-ranking Nazi, Baron Otto von Vector. Spring 1942, Austria. The Baroness and her six children are at their summer house in Zell am See, an idyllic lakeside town near Salzburg. They're bronzing themselves in the mountain sun, boating, frolicking in the lake. She writes to her husband that the children are thriving and becoming strong swimmers. Swimming is important in this story. The Baron can't be with them this summer. It's a shame, but he's much too occupied with his work 700 miles away in a place called Lemberg, which used to be called Louvouf. In a letter to his wife, he writes, there's a lot going on in Lemberg. He just doesn't have time to join his family, not right now anyway. There is indeed a lot going on in Lemberg. Over the course of four months in 1942, Lemberg's Jewish population was steadily, swiftly and ruthlessly liquidated. Shot, hanged or sent to Belzec, a nearby extermination camp, where they were gassed. I've got a certain interest in these events because my work as a barrister involves me in many cases of mass killing, but also for another reason. My grandfather Leon's entire family, virtually all the Flaschners and the Buchholzes, 80 people or more, from Lemberg and nearby Zhulkiev, were among those who were murdered in those months. Uncles, aunts, cousins, nephews, nieces and more distant family members, all wiped out. Names like Malka, my great-grandmother, who I never knew, 
and her brothers Josel, Aaron, and Libus, and their children and their children's children, all extinguished in a matter of months. Whilst the Baroness and the children were relaxing by the lake, my grandfather's family were being murdered. I'm Philippe Sands, and this is The Rat Line. Document number 000508, issued by the Central Registry for War Criminals. Date of crimes, 1942 to 1945. Town crime committed in Lvov. Subject is responsible for mass murder, shooting and executions under his command as Governor of District of Galicia. Episode 1. The Secrets in the Castle. This is a story about the Baron, a man called Otto von Wächter. He was Austrian, a lawyer, a husband, a father, and a very senior Nazi. Otto Wächter is a Nazi you've never heard of, because he escaped justice. I'm going to take you on an unexpected journey to find out what exactly happened to Otto Wächter. It's a journey that goes right to the heart of something called the Rat Line, the Nazi escape route out of Europe that began in 1945. Along the way, we're going to meet a very unlikely cast of Nazis, fascists, assassins, spies, sons of spies, lovers, murderers, and a genial elderly man who lives alone in a castle steeped in family secrets, who I've come to know rather well. At roundabout, take the second exit. I would have taken the first time we've been heading back to Vienna. It's about 1.30 on a misty and increasingly wet Austrian autumn day. Um, in fact, the rain is really now buckling down. Got up very early this morning, having gone to bed very late, rushed to Heathrow Airport and flew to Vienna, and I'm now in a car hurtling towards Hagenberg, where I'm going to meet my old acquaintance, Horst von Wächter, who is the son of Otto von Wächter, There it is. That's the Schloss on the right. That is the Schloss. Great square building, um, silhouetted against the valley and the hills. A huge, great building in which an elderly gentleman lives entirely on his own. Towards the grand old front gates... Schloss Hagenberg is an amazing place. It's huge, a huge 14th century pile, four great outer walls behind a somewhat overgrown moat. 
Horst! Hi! Hello. We've made it. How are you? I'm fine. How are you, my friend? I, I have everything ready. Really? It's so nice to be back. Uh, I don't know why you're here, but we'll see. <laughs> Horst Wächter is nearly 80. He's a gentleman, warm and generous, and he always has this sort of musty smell from the wood he burns to stay warm. He's tall, his hair's thinning, and he likes to wear a lumber jacket. Today, just after the election of Donald Trump, he greets me wearing a red baseball cap. It's a reflection of a man with a decent sense of humour. Make Hagenberg great again, the cap says. A friend gave it to me, he tells me. His eyes are twinkling. He's mischievous, and the friend was a Jew, he adds, for good measure. Horst's life is dominated by two big projects. The first is his ancient schloss, what we'd call a castle, and which Horst says dates back to the Knights Templar. The second is a more recent project, a big project now, to persuade the world that his father, Otto, was actually a rather decent man. And that's the strange context of my relationship with Horst. I believe his father bears a significant degree of responsibility for the murder of my grandfather's family. He thinks I'm wrong. Some of episode one of The Rat Line called The Secrets in the Castle, presented by Philippe Sands and produced by Gemma Newby. Also, David Crawford and Gordon Cooper shared their Y2K experiences after hearing Headlong surviving Y2K a couple of weeks ago. Thanks to both of you. Low-key would be a polite way of putting it. Gordon was in a team masterminding the Y2K response in Tauranga. But all he seems to have done is drink quite a lot of tea, and that's about it, really. He writes, a momentous occasion? Definitely not. And coming up on the podcast hour next week, we'll be sharing memories of a very special family Christmas. Traditions were really important for us. You've only got to do something once in our family and somebody will describe it as being a tradition. They do like their traditions, Katie's family. Christmas Eve is is one of those times for a special meal tradition. We always have the same dish. Everyone's looking forward to this prawn salad dinner. I'm I'm, I'm part of this family. Prawn salad dinner, I guess you'd call Uh, it. You know, but I, I... Everyone seems to look forward to it. It's just... It's not my cup of tea. Every mouthful is delicious. But I do it because I love the family and, you know. I like the dish, but I don't like prawns. Look, I, I'm, the, I'm the uncle. I, I've never noticed it, to tell you the truth. Pretty memorable. Is that right? For the last four, five years? Six years, seven years. Eight years? Nine years? Never noticed it's the same dish each year. Ah, oh, lovely family reunion and a prawn salad on Christmas Eve. What could possibly go wrong? The Nightmare Before Christmas from Mike Williams coming up soon on the Podcast Hour. Do you work in an open plan office? Well, ever since the management gurus saw them as a way of improving our productivity and increasing collaboration, more and more of us are. But do open offices actually work? Do people enjoy them? Or do all the distractions and a lack of privacy actually make us less productive? 
Freakonomics Radio is a popular podcast that emerged out of Freakonomics, the 2005 bestseller that spawned a franchise of three other books since. In the show, one of the book's authors, the journalist Stephen Dubner, sets out to explore the hidden side of everything, including this recent look at the history of office design. The office is such a quintessential emblem of modern society that it may seem it's been around forever, but of course it hasn't. You know, the economy of the United States was based on farming and it was based on manufacturing. And so the office was almost an afterthought. That's Nikhil Saval, the author of a book called Cubed, A Secret History of the Workplace. And so people thought, well, offices are essentially paperwork factories. So we should just sort of array them in in an assembly line sort of formation. This meant a big room filled with long rows of desks and scattered on the periphery, private offices for the managers. This factory model, which got its start in the late 19th century, came to be known as the American plan. And it was standard office form for decades, at least in the U.S. But then in the middle of the 20th century in Germany. There were two brothers, the Schneller brothers, who began to wonder about the nature of the American plan. There was a sense that this was arbitrary and there was no real reason to lay out an office in this way. In 1958, Wolfgang and Eberhard Schneller created the Quickborner Consulting Group with the idea of bringing some intentionality to modern office design. And one of the ideas that came to them was that an office is not like a factory. It's actually a different kind of workplace and it requires its own sort of system. And so maybe there isn't a reason to have desks in rows. Maybe there isn't a reason for people to have private offices at all if essentially the office is not about producing things, but it's about producing ideas and about producing communication among different people. And so over time, they pioneered a concept uh, that they called the Bureaulandschaft or office landscape. And it was essentially the first truly open plan office. The idea was to create an office that was more collaborative and more egalitarian. It looks extremely chaotic. You just have desks and clusters, and they they just seem to be arranged in a pretty haphazard form. But in fact, there was rigorous planning around it in a way that would facilitate communication and the flow of people and ideas. And it eventually made its way to England and the United States, and it was considered an incredible breakthrough. A breakthrough, perhaps, but the earliest open offices drew complaints similar to the ones we hear today. Lots of complaints by not instituting a barrier between people, uh, by not having doors, by not having any way of, of controlling the way sound traveled in the office. It stopped facilitating the thing it was supposed to facilitate, which was communication, because it became harder to communicate in an office environment where phones were ringing off the hook, where you could hear typewriters across the room and things like that. It wasn't actually the utopian space that it promised to be. In fact, it was deeply debilitating in some ways for the kind of work that people wanted to do. Meanwhile, there was an American named Robert Probst working for the Herman Miller Furniture Company in Michigan. He was not himself trained as a designer. He was sort of like a freelance thinker. Probst was intrigued by the office landscape idea, its openness and egalitarian aspirations, but he also appreciated its practical shortcomings. 
And he decided to turn to experts, to anthropologists, to social psychologists, to people of that nature. After some research, Probst came to the conclusion that individuals are, well, they're individuals and they need more control over their workspace. He and the designer George Nelson came up with a new design in which each office worker would be surrounded by a suite of objects to help them work better. In 1964, Herman Miller debuted the Action Office. There was a standing desk, uh, a regular desk that you sat at, and a telephone booth. Design critics loved the Action Office. It looked incredible, uh, but it was very expensive and Very few managers wanted to spend this kind of money on their employees. So they went back to the drawing board and they tried to come up with something cheaper. In 1968, Herman Miller released the Action Office 2. And it was this three-walled space, these fabric-wrapped walls that were angled. And they were meant to enclose a suite of furniture. And it was meant to mitigate the kind of chaos that an open office plan might otherwise have. You may know the Action Office 2 by its more generic name. Which is the cubicle. The cubicle promised a variety of advantages. It's meant to be very flexible, and it can form an impromptu conference room. And it was meant to divide up an open office plan in a way to mitigate the kind of chaos that an open office plan or an office landscape might otherwise have. And... It was incredibly well-received. It was copied by a number of furniture companies. And uh, soon it was spreading in offices everywhere. But the cubicle could also be exploited. It became a perfect tool for cramming more and more workers into less and less space uh, very cheaply. And so the, the whole notion of what Probst was trying to do, what you know, the, to give a worker a space that they could control, was turned into in, to the exact opposite it was clear that his concept had become the most loathed symbol of office life. Indeed, the revolutionary freedom-giving cubicle came to be seen as a sort of corporate version of solitary confinement. This left Robert Probst most unhappy. And he blamed managers. He blamed people who, you know, were, were not enlightened, that, that created what he called barren, rat-hole-type environments. Robert Probst, like the Schneller brothers before him, had not quite succeeded in creating a vibrant and efficient open office. Their new environments introduced new problems. Chaos in the first case, cubicles in the second. As with many problems that we humans try to correct, whether in office culture or society at large, the correction turns out to be an overcorrection. Unintended consequences leap out and humble us. And yet, In this case, the fact is that most offices today are still open offices. Why are we holding on to this concept if it makes so many people so unhappy? If you're looking purely at a cost per square foot, uh, having an open office is is cheaper. Stephen Turbin again, and here's Ethan Bernstein again. There are a lot of people, whether they're managers or employees, who like the open office. Bernstein admits that managers are primarily impressed by the cost savings of an open office. But some employees... Some employees like it because they have visions of it being more vibrant, more interactive. Um, you know, that, that fun, noisy, experiential place they're hoping for um, once you take down the walls and make everyone able to see each other. And there's also been a big push around uh, these 
collisions that have emerged in social sciences. How do you create these random uh, interactions between people that spark creativity? Collision is a term you hear a lot in office design and the design of public spaces generally. It's the promise that unplanned encounters can lead to good things between coworkers or neighbors, even strangers. Conversations that otherwise wouldn't have happened. The exchange of ideas, unforeseen collaboration. Now, the office is plainly a different sort of space from the public square. The office is primarily concerned with productivity. We'd all like to be happy working in our offices, but is it maybe worth surrendering a bit of happiness and privacy and so on for the sake of higher productivity? After all, that's what we're being paid for. If you want to have a certain kind of interaction that's deep, productive in idea generation or in something that requires us to have lots of quote-unquote bandwidth between each other, it's nice to have that face-to-face interaction. Face-to-face conversations are so important. That's Ben Weber. He's the CEO of an organizational analytics company called Humanize. What we do is uh, use data about how people interact and collaborate at work. Think email, chat, meeting data, uh, but now also sensor data about how people interact in the real world. And we use that to understand really what goes on inside companies. Humanize has developed sociometric ID badges embedded with sensors to capture these data. We have by far the largest data set on workplace interaction in the world. And what do the data say about face-to-face communication? In all of our research, that has consistently been the most predictive factor of almost any organizational outcome you can think of. Performance, job satisfaction, retention, you name it. I mean, people did evolve for millions of years to interact in a face-to-face way. We're very used to small changes in facial expression, in small changes in tone of voice. And that's particularly important in work contexts where high levels of trust, especially as work gets more and more complex and the things we build and make together are more and more complex. Uh, Really having that trust and being able to convey really rich information is critical. Bernstein and Turbin also believe in the value of face-to-face communication. Nuanced communication around, here's a proposal I have, here is a thought I have about how this last meeting went, that is a very rich and nuanced form of communication. And uh, most literature suggests that uh, face-to-face communication is much better at that. Sociologists have suggested for a long time that propinquity breeds interaction. Propinquity being co-location, being close to one another. The closer two people are together, um, the more likely they are to interact, the more likely they are to get married, the more likely they they are to work together. And interaction being, we will have a conversation. We will actually get some kind of collaboration done between the two of us. You can look at slouching shoulders. You can see what is their facial expression. And that conveys a lot of, of uh, information that is really hard to convey, no matter how good you are at emojis. And let me tell you, I am pretty good at emojis. Some of Freakonomics Radio's episode number 358 called Yes, the Open Office is Terrible, but it doesn't have to be from Stitcher and Dubner Productions. Presented by Stephen Dubner and thanks to Harry Huggins for his help bringing that to you. In No Feeling is Final from the ABC... The writer and podcaster Honor Eastley presents a highly personal account of her experience of living with anxiety and suicidal thoughts. I'll repeat the warning that Honor gives her listeners before each episode. 
Her story touches on heavy lifting feelings territory, including what it's like to feel so hopeless that you want to die. The show weaves together years' worth of her audio diaries, also scripted narrative and recreations of scenes from her past, to create a moving memoir about mental health that's difficult and heartbreaking and confronting. But it also speaks powerfully and with humour about the experience of living with a cruel voice in your head that's always trying to put you down. Maybe you have a mean voice of your own. You know, that voice that tells you you shouldn't have eaten that ice cream or you're an asshole for running late to that meeting again. For me, most of the time, it's just kind of there in the background. It's like having a really yappy little dog that can talk and follow you everywhere and call you an asshole. Hey, you're an asshole. 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 I reckon it's kind of good to have a voice in your head that asks if you're being an asshole. It's a good way to avoid, you know, being an asshole. I think they call it a moral compass. But sometimes the voice is just calling me an asshole because it can. Because it knows I'll believe what it says. The voice is a car crash that lives permanently inside my head. And I am a rubbernecking onlooker, pretending to be walking to work, but really just wanting to get close enough that I can see how bad it really is. As if knowing more will help me to avoid my own car crash. And this is really how an inane critical voice in your head can become an overwhelming force of doom. The voice kind of goes into overdrive, imagining all these car crash scenarios and insisting on thorough, proper investigation of all of them. The problem really is that holding a magnifying glass up to the potential car crash of your life can leave you with this flailing, disproportionate sense of reality. Just like how media sometimes puts awful ideologies on moral par with reasonable ones in the name of balanced debate, this voice takes charge on the back of much of the same arguments that allow neo-Nazis to end up on mainstream talk shows. Rat race got you down? Shouldn't we at least listen to what they're saying? Understanding is the first step to peace, right? What do they say? Keep your friends close and that asshole dog inside your head closer? But who am I to judge? I've spent 15 years giving equal seating to a voice that seems to think that constant ridicule is a great motivational tactic. And Graham's right. Sometimes the voice really is out of touch with reality. It doesn't matter what I'm doing even on stage playing a song at a fancy writers' festival. So please join me and let's get our clapping into formation to welcome to the stage Honor Eastley. Yes? Oh, cool. Hey, I'm just going to say a few words and then I'm going to play something. The voice is still there. Um, Way to not do a sound check. Now there's a shitty static sound coming through your guitar lead. All right. In my bio, it says I'm a professional feeler of feelings. But I don't really think the voice is like Fox News because I don't watch Fox News. I think it's something else. Sometimes 
I think the voice is more like Beyonce. But like if Beyonce was really, really mean. And I have to hand it to the voice. Just like a world-class entertainer, it really knows how to elicit a response. If this voice is Beyonce, then my body is a hundred thousand screaming fans saying, whatever you say, Beyonce, oh, you think I'm a piece of shit. Oh, you're so right, babe. I love you forever. Just like the real Beyonce, the voice is designed to be captivating, mesmerizing, impossible to look away from. Even if it gets better now, it's just going to get worse overall. Over the years, I've been asked by a number of different therapists where the voice came from. I've never really been able to give them a conclusive answer, but I know it's been there for a long time. We found the tape. Gray and I are at my parents' house. We're digging through boxes in my old room that's now really a, just a glorified storage space. Was this a one? Looking for what is yeah, my earliest fine. memory of the voice. Uh, what are we going here? Put yourself in the picture. Fall down the side of the Titanic, escape from past and future worlds, or ride a virtual 3D roller coaster. These are just some of the thrills you can have on video forever. When you experience the movie magic of special effects, new secrets behind the screen. There's something I like about the phrase, on video forever, given how hard we have to look for this, and now have to look for the technology to play it. <laughs> they weren't as future-focused as they thought they were. Back in the 90s, my family went to this place called ScienceWorks. It was kind of like a theme park, but everything was science-related. We went there a lot as kids. My memories from it are this hazy concoction of reality and things that I'm sure a child invented fiction. An old-style train out in the cafeteria, a contraption filled with ever-flowing honey, Morgan Freeman over the loudspeakers, you know those fake real kid memories. On one particular trip, they had this exhibition where you could videotape yourself in front of green screens in all manner of precarious situations. Falling off a cliff, escaping from lava, inside a stranger's fridge. But apparently the one most seared in my mind was perhaps the least death-defying. Singing karaoke with my family, while green screen ghost images of our silhouettes shadowed each of us. At the end of the day, you got a VHS tape. This VHS tape that 21 years later, I now hold in my hand. Did I watch this tape a lot as a kid? You kids could have got up to anything (laughs) in there. But this one, I have, like, seared into my brain the rock band bit where, like, on a green screen, karaokeing to a song. And I was just doing a pretty normal, shy kid thing. And I, I don't know if you remember, I was like, I don't want to be involved. Do you remember? No. Okay. Yes. It's like the first thing that I remember, like, seeing of myself and really regretting a lot. Oh. Does that make sense? Yeah. Like, like an unreasonable amount. Mm. Yeah, of like replaying and being like, you should have been less shy. You should have been more performative. Yeah. Mm. 
Yes, you regretted the um, not perhaps getting getting more involved into it. Well, I think Amy's in the. As I remember it, Amy's out in the front of the video, and she's all like, I don't know. She has a ponytail and is pretending to sing. But I'm all just, like, very shy and in the background. But you were a bit shy and in the background, even at ballet. Was I? Yeah. I thought I was rambunctious. <laughs> no? You were a little bit hesitant when you were probably that age, whatever the age that it was. Yeah, I was going to say, how old would I be, like, yeah. eight? Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> Maybe even younger. And that is my earliest memory of The Voice. I don't even entirely remember what the voice was saying. Here's your time to shine, and yep, you blew it. I just remember replaying this video in my head at night over and over again. Didn't I hear you want to be a famous singer? Want to be twin triple threats like the Olsen twins? But you can't even perform karaoke. The voice berating me for my shyness, for my missed opportunity for family karaoke, for being plain, unspectacular, unremarkable... For being a kid, really. I was, like, trying to think of when was the first time that I was, like, I can remember being an anxious little petal. And that's the first one, is that video. I don't know how many times I must have watched it, or if I did watch it at all. <laughs> the, but it's it was, seared it's in seared your in brain. my brain of, like, mm. the first moment of searing rumination. And they do stay there for all your life. What? <laughs> I thought it would go away. No, 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 no. Are you saying that I might regret this for the rest of my life, Mum? We all have those thoughts, the sticky memories of what we've done wrong, the feeling of dread. But I think my mum's voice must be really tame in comparison to mine. She knows what happens to me when the voice gets really loud. Are you ready? I don't know what the song's going to be this time. I never do. It's a song, it's a song about freedom. It's always and maybe... So I'm sitting on my bed. <laughs> I've got my eyes closed. i got my hands over my ears. I'm singing a stupid song that I'm making up on the spot. Or maybe it's a great song. I can't tell. I've got my hands over my ears. Right now, Grey is fetching my nightly sleeping pill. At the moment, we do this every night so that I can't see or hear where he keeps them. (laughs) Tap, tap, tap. You can stop now. Mum says he's a keeper. Right now, for practical reasons, he is, in fact, the keeper of all the medications I'm currently taking. Why is Graham hiding my medication? Well, you know that voice that I'm so prone to rub a neck over? Sometimes I fly too close to the sun on that one. I stare too closely at that repeating gif of how I'm an asshole or whatever else bad (sighs) until I'm not merely observing the car crash, but I'm actually inside of it thinking that my only way out of it is my own death. That's when shit gets real. That's when I start to hide drugs from myself because I'm afraid that if I don't, I might die. (laughs) 
You see, it's more than just panic attacks. Part of episode one of No Feeling is Final from the ABC called The Voice, presented by Honor Eastley, produced by Alice Moldovan, the sound engineer's Russell Stapleton, and the executive producer is Joel Werner. And that's about all from us for now. You've been listening to Unspooled, The Rat Line, Free Economics Radio, and No Feeling is Final. And if you've heard something good recently, then do let me know at pods at rnz.co.nz. I'll be sharing lots of your recommendations on future shows. For now, from me, Richard Scott, see you. I'll be back next week. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.